jumping into the deep end on this one. That's right. No one thought we'd do it. We wondered if we should. But at the end of the day, why not go ahead and have the uncomfortable conversations together? That's right, folks. Today on Free Exchange, we are covering critical race theory, the 1619 Project. Are all these different movements trying to shine a critical view on American history? Is it time for that? Or is this an omen? racially divisive future to come. All this and more discussed today. Um, I'm joined by Badger Institute Senior Vice President Michael Jar. Michael, this is one of those things where it's like once you start talking about it, you're opening a whole Pandora's box because one side thinks that this should be implemented everywhere. The other side thinks that this should be absolutely banned at every level. Why did we decide to talk about this topic now and what do you think our guest can do to illuminate that? Yeah, thanks, Rem. So it's an important discussion to have, obviously. Uh, it's uh, being discussed in schools and school districts across the state of Wisconsin. Um, and uh, we've you know, seen it banned in several states and in uh, particular school districts. It's a very divisive issue. And so we thought we would bring in Bob Woodson, who is a longtime civil rights leader, uh, community development leader, um, who's got some uh, very strong opinions about this. Uh, he's started an organization called um, the 1776 Unites Project. Uh, and the people who have participated in that project, a number of thought leaders and writers, have uh, authored a book called uh, Red, White, and Black uh, that has just come out and uh, is doing very well on Amazon right now. And so we thought Bob would be the ideal guy to come in and have a little conversation about this. I mean, if we were going to bring in anybody to discuss this, I can't think of anyone better. I mean, let's just go ahead and get, get, give our listeners a quick rundown of his history alone. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Bob uh, Woodson is a founder and uh, president of the Woodson Center, uh, formerly the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise based in Washington, D.C. He founded the center in 1981 to help uh, residents of low-income neighborhoods address the problems within their communities. Uh, Bob is a former civil rights activist uh, who uh, eventually uh, kind of parted ways over a difference uh, of opinion on uh, the, how we approach race issues and the, the value of the American founding. Um, he headed up the National Urban League Department of Criminal Justice. Uh, he's been a resident fellow at the American Enterprise uh, Foundation for uh, Public Policy Research. Um, Bob is referred to by many as the godfather of neighborhood empowerment movement. Uh, and it's cool. Uh, he's done a lot of work here in Milwaukee, particularly in the area of violence pre prevention amongst youth. So he's worked within the schools here. He's worked with organizations like the Running Rebels, uh, the Joseph Project, which is an organization here that uh, finds employment for people around the state from the from within the urban core and, and finds some good paying jobs around the state is actually named uh, for a book that he wrote on the triumphs of, of Joseph. Um, in response to an epidemic of this youth violence, he has uh, worked within uh, urban, rural, and suburban era neighborhoods alike, uh, founding the uh, violence-free zones in a lot of troubled schools and neighborhoods throughout the nation. He is a MacArthur Genius Awardee. He received the Social Inter Entrepreneurship Award from the Manhattan Institute and was the recipient of the 2008 Bradley Prize awarded by Wisconsin's own Bradley Foundation. So if we were to ever get the best person to talk about this, we probably got him in this. We definitely did. <laughs> Bob is, uh, and, and I like Bob too because he's, he's got great wit, he's got uh, a lifetime of experience, and he's got just tremendous in, insights 
into issues that are incredibly complex and divisive. Absolutely. So folks, we're going to go ahead and start the interview here in a second. But please, if you haven't already, share this episode with a friend. We're on Spotify, Anchor, you name it. We're across the internet everywhere. Um, Other than that, Michael, anything else that we need to bring up? I don't think so. I'm excited to hear what Bob has to say. Absolutely. So we're about to go ahead and jump right in. So Bob, again, welcome. Uh, You and I had dinner in Las Vegas um, in July of 2018, I think it was, and and nobody should be in Las Vegas in July. But uh, you and I were, <clears throat> you and I were there. We had spent a couple of days with the great John Ponder, uh, looking at the work of Hope for Prisoners. Um, over dinner, we had a conversation about uh, these issues of of race and uh, what you kind of refer to as the uh, race grievance industry. And you talked about this idea that you had to bring people. Uh, kind of across the ideological spectrum into a discussion of America's true history and, and this discussion of an honest discussion of, of race and of poverty and so on. You talked about re- reaching out to thought leaders and um, uh, writers and authors and uh, scholars across the, the board to come in and have this conversation. And my understanding is, as, as uh, you described it, and as I've seen now, the 1776 Unites project unfold, that this really is the uh, the the birth of that idea. This really is it uh, is it coming into formation. Um, and uh, it's been, to what I uh, have seen, it's been a very critical, very crucial, very timely conversation. You've assembled an amazing array of participants. Shelby Steele of the Hoover Institution in Stanford, John McWhorter of Columbia University, Glenn Lowry of Brown University, Carol Swain, a former professor of political science and law at Princeton and Vanderbilt, Clarence Page, a Pulitzer Prize winning syndicated columnist, Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at American Enterprise Institute, uh, Ishmael Hernandez, the uh, former uh, communist Marxist Puerto Rican who came to the United States, actually to Mississippi, expecting to uh, discover discover a racist hellhole, and actually had a very positive experience, and uh, and and his, and his worldview changed 180 degrees. So, um, Bob, tell me a little bit about this 1776 Unites. What what are you guys up to there? Well, I was, and uh, we were simply outraged when 1619 uh, was published in the New York Times. And of course, you know, it's been well reported that the, they brought together an array of liberal, uh, radical, leftist blacks, and they, and they published a series of essays, and the theme was to redefine American history of a slaveocracy. that the real birth date of America was not 1776, but the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but the arrival on our shores in Virginia of 20 African slaves. And they went on uh, from there uh, to propagate the, the, the false notion that since America uh, was, uh, slavery uh, found its birth here at that time, that therefore the country should be forever defined by slavery and that all whites are complicit and are the recipients of, 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 um, of, of, of privilege and, and, and all blacks are victims to be compensated and patronized. 
Um, and the very fact that the New York Times would spend so much time and then the Pulitzer Institute came along to even validate this false history. And there was an instant reaction from both the left and the right challenging the content, the misperceptions and, and the outright uh, false presentations of our history. The most prominent one, of course, was that the Revolutionary War was fought to protect slavery. <laughs> And that was uh, after some pushback, uh, that was, they walked that back. But uh, so what I, I, the reason that I organized 1776, since the radical left was using the black community and the issue of slavery as the, as the instrument, the bludgeon to, 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 to strike at the heart of our country's values, I thought that a counter uh, narrative should be developed, but the messengers should also be black, primarily. Hmm. Uh, and so we organized not just thinkers and, and journalists, but also grassroots leaders, people whose lives embody the principles and values of our founders. Um, and so we brought together this array of people and we didn't want to engage in debate with the other side. We wanted to offer an aspirational and an inspirational alternative narrative. That, and that the first thing we did with our essays is go at the heart of their charge against the country and that the problems confronting low-income black communities of out-of-wedlock births and 70% violence, drug addiction, that all of these are a result of, uh, of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And the high number of blacks incarcerated are all. So we, through our essays, we, we refuted that by saying and demonstrating that when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. Mm. And so we, we talked about how when we were denied access to hotels, we built our own. We put 5,000 schools in, uh, in place. So our essays just present uh, blacks not as the, the, the prisoners to oppression, but it's always our, our acts of resilience and resistance to slavery by, uh, by engaging in self-help efforts. And, 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 and so our essays, our whole series that tells uh, defines America as uh, should not be defined by its birth defect of slavery, but by the promise of redemption and transformation, which is at the heart of what America is. So, Bob, the 1619 Project uh, versus the, the, the concepts uh, put forth by 1776 Unites, it's not, you're saying it's not just a matter of a, of a difference of opinion. You actually wrote in the book, um, Black, Red, Black, Red, White, and Black, uh, that um, if the 1619 Project's worldview goes unchallenged, that this country will continue its social, spiritual, and moral decline. Um, why, why is that? Why is it so important to push back on this perspective? Well, because I think Samuel Adams said that capitalism and democracy are but empty vessels into which we pour our values as a nation. And therefore, if uh, that, uh, a nation, once it becomes, it loses its virtue, then it's, it, it's going to collapse. 
A contract between two individuals, uh, it, it doesn't mean anything if one of them is dishonest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a contract only exists between two honorable people. And all it does is set forth the, 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 the details of that relationship. And so it's the same with a nation. If, 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 if the nation is being run by people whose values are corrupt, the institutions have no meaning. And therefore, uh, I, I'm afraid that this country will not continue if we uh, allow the radical left to denigrate the very po- policies and, 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 pra- and values that enabled us to survive, particularly in black America, that even in the face of Jim Crow, and I point out in my essays, in the 1930 to 1940, when we were in the depression, and, uh, but the, the, the black marriage rate was higher than any other group in the country mm-hmm. because of our Christian faith and, 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 the, and the strength of the nuclear families. It protected us against self-destructive behavior. Elderly people could walk safely through the streets of Milwaukee during that time without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And that was because of the values that define blacks at that time. And so these very values of uh, Black Lives Matter is, is, uh, that purports to be pursuing justice for blacks, in fact, migrated quickly from that to denigrate the nuclear family as being Eurocentric and therefore racist it denigrated capitalism, it, it, it burned the American flag, it, it burned Bibles, it said the Christian cross is a symbol of white supremacy. So this is an assault on the cultural values of the people. And, and that's why the pushback has to come from the people who survived slavery and Jim Crow as a consequence of the embrace of these values. So is there an underlying ideological um, motivation for this rewrite of history? If, if on the one hand, we say that um, our nation is based on equality and we have aspired to that and, and it's been slow with starts and fits, uh, we've, not, we've certainly not uh, exercised equality um, uh, over the course of our history, even handedly or well, but we've moved forward. If we change that to a word, for instance, like equity, that we really need to seek, what we need to be about is seeking equity for everyone, those words make a difference. Um, what, what, what does that mean? And uh, what's the um, kind of the ide- ideological backing, the ideological goal of uh, changing this worldview? And, and just well, again, to jump in real to... fast, I mean, when Michael, just so we can get our words, you know, uniform in a sense, when you, when you say equality, you're saying it differently than, let's say, a commentator on the news will say it. When they say equality, they're almost always talking equality of outcome. When it comes to people that believe in individual liberty, we're discussing equality of opportunity. Exactly. Well, it's a difference between equality and equity. Mm-hmm. When they refer to equity, they're talking about equal out, uh, a guaranteed a, a certain percentage of the trophies. <laughs> But equality, when we define it as a civil rights veteran, is, is a, an opportunity to participate, hmm. an opportunity. Like I said, through that the people on the left look at it through the, through the prism of crucifixion. And those of us who are pro-American, we look at it through redemption and resurrection. Hmm. 
It's like to the people on the left, Hank Aaron is the strikeout king. But to those of, on our side, he's a home run king. <laughs> because they only look at the deficits and they don't mm. compare deficits with the assets. So equity is a deficit model. Equality is a, an affirmative model. So what's, what's behind all this then? Why, why push this uh, alternative narrative? It's not just a disagreement about history. There's a deeper motivation there. It really is deep, but there are actually forces who really want to push this country to socialism. Mm -hmm. They are pushing Marxism, and they're duping a lot of well-meaning people who are well-meaning but ill-informed. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said one of the most difficult human uh, traits to confront is folly. Mm. Folly can be more difficult to confront than malice. Because malice you can confront with violence. <laughs> but there's very few uh, antidotes to folly. When people think they are helping you, when in fact they're injuring you with the helping hand. So this really is about uh, a different perspective on, on ideology. Uh, one, that's, one that advances uh, the ideals of the Constitution, freedom, equality, uh, free markets, versus one of central planning, of, of control, of an elite few dictating to the rest of us how we should live. Absolutely, but let me just say, Michael, that Dr. King said that the highest form of maturity is the ability to be self-critical. I think conservatives are in part responsible for this happening. Hmm. How is because, that? Because these forces have been at work for decades in America since the 60s. And conservative pushback against it has been largely rhetorical. It's, it's educating people, the belief that if we just present the proper ideas and that people will, will come to their senses and embrace the, the, the principles that we articulate in our white papers and our conferences and in our books that we publish published, that all the public needs to do is just learn the truth and we will teach them the truth and they will make rational decisions. The left understands, but the conservatives do not have a, a ground game. I, I think that is uh, 100% spot on. I mean, I heard a joke recently that basically said to be a conservative today is to try and raise your kids traditionally, put them in 12 years of public education, send them to college to be a Marxist, and then when they tell you that they're going to vote in a way that brings about actual socialist policies, you publish an op-ed asking how you lost the culture war. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, I, I, I laughed at it and then, you know, my, my chuckle kind of went down a bit because I'm like, you know, that, that's kind of how it is. And, and I remember when, when I was getting first, you know, politically cognizant of what is going on with our education system and then our broader government, it, it really began to show me, it's like, you know, by the time people go to the voting booth for something, or by the time they go and advocate for a certain piece of legislation, they, they pretty much know what they're doing. That's the last time you're going to be able to convince them because as Andrew, Breitbart once said it's you know politics is downstream of culture 
And Michael and I were having this conversation earlier. I'm, I'm originally from Virginia. I just moved here to Wisconsin. And Loudoun County, Virginia, my neighbor, we had a big viral video that got picked up by everybody during the height of the lockdown. And it's these parents who were going and basically in droves yelling at the school board. Now, did they deserve to yell? I mean, did the school board deserve to be yelled at? I would argue, yeah. Okay. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you took the time to learn where they're meeting and when they're meeting. You drove out there, you waited in line, then you actually stood in line, and then you just yelled at another adult. Nothing you could do to yell at them or call them names or anything, no matter how many views that video got, it's not affecting a single thing about them. They were still going to vote the way they were. They were still believe the things they believed. You you were a day late and a dollar short to the dance. Because by the time that you actually had input, it's called an election. And not to get into the election side of things, but ultimately it's like, you know, these things could have been prevented. Paying attention to what's in your child's school school textbooks, you know, that, that could have taken you five minutes. Googling some of the writers could have taken you five minutes. It seems that with conservatives, we like to we like to get to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, the problem is here. But when it comes to identifying the problem and then getting involved to prevent the problem from even happening. That part seems to fall on deaf ears. You, you're absolutely right. I have been trying for decades to get conservatives to support low-income leaders who, whose lives are directly adversely affected by these policies. These are the intermediary or mediating structures that low-income people uh, rely upon, and they are the ones who are suffering the consequence of it. And and that's why it's important as a part of our uh, gathering, we have not only scholars and civic leaders, but we have grassroots leaders whose lives embody the principles of transformation and redemption. Because people are tired of hearing a sermon, they want to see it. Uh, the the low-income black communities are more religious they are clear about all these issues, and therefore I have been trying to encourage conservatives to join in common community with low-income people in these communities that share a common understanding and appreciation for their values and for conservative scholars to reflect uh, in their writings the experience of grassroots people and, and quoting them and, and citing examples of how their lives are, are, are based upon the, the principles of our founders. But they haven't done that. Conservatives spend too much time talking about what they're against, as opposed to writing about affirmative things. The Badger Institute, for instance, I think is the exception. When you all and the devoted resources to, to go out and spend a whole uh, uh, feature on John Ponder and things that are being done in communities in Milwaukee, um, the running rebels, and how you as a, as a public policy think tank went out and, and, and introduced your readers to the actual experiences of people who are, whose lives embody the principles of our founders. This is, this is where the confluence of, of academia and, and, and the street and the suites come together. Mm -hmm. Thank you yeah, for saying exactly. that. We'll be sending you your check later today. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
But Bob, we've had this conversation before though, too. And one of the things that you emphasize and have long emphasized at the Woodson Center and the, you know, previously the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise is that there has been so much success within the black community, uh, the, the amazing ability of the black community to, to face unbelievable hurdles and to still succeed. Why are those stories so important? And uh, can you share a little bit about, you know, what you're, what you're talking about in that context? Yeah, but when, when the left says that, well, black communities today were a result of legacy of slavery, and, and we have, we highlight, like, for instance, when, when whites are at their worst, blacks are at their best. One of our scholars looked at the, the records of six major plantations at the end of slavery to find out what is the state of the, of the black family on those plantations. They found 75% of slave families had a man and a woman raising children. Mm. And that tradition of nuclear families were maintained for a whole century up until uh, 1962, 85% of all black households had a man and a woman raising children. Um, and so that, that was one. Also, when uh, blacks were denied access to education, we point out that the, edu the education gap in the South between 1920 and 1940 was three years. It was eighth grade for whites, fifth grade for blacks. Okay, Julius Rosenwald, the CEO of Sears, partnered with Booker T. Washington, and they built 5,000 Rosenwald Booker T. schools throughout the South, 5,000. That's more than McDonald's are in, 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 in that area. <laughs> and as a consequence, they were operating with used textbooks with half the budgets of white schools, but yet within 20 years, they closed the gap from three years to six months. In 19, at the turn of the century in 1920, there were four, five major high schools in five major cities, Baltimore, New York, Atlanta, Washington, and New Orleans. Again, these were high schools, all black, 50 uh, people to, uh, to, to a classroom, used textbooks, half the budgets, but every one of those black high schools out-tested every white school in those cities. Yet, it's a question, if race were the issue, then why are blacks today failing in systems run by their own people? And so in our essays, we point out the fact that economic, the left says, well, because of redlining, blacks were unable to get an anchor in the economy. Well, we looked at Chicago in the Bronzeville section in 1929. There were 731 black-owned businesses, 100 million in real estate assets. Hmm. Just, just in one city alone. And this is duplicated throughout the country. There were black Wall Streets. Only hmm. in the capitalist country could people be born slaves and die millionaires? And two of them came back and purchased a plantation on which they were slaves. And one of them, Robert Smalls, took in the, 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 the destitute slave family as an act of what I call radical grace. Wow. And so this is an important history to tell only in a, again, no, no individual or nation should be judged by 
its birth defect of slavery. We are the only nation that has an Emancipation Proclamation. We're the only country that fought a war to end slavery. We have made tremendous progress, and the Constitution is an instrument that allows us to continue to make reforms, to be a more perfect union. And would you say that the 1619 project and ideas like critical race theory and so on tamp down that sense of personal agency and personal ability to succeed? It is one of the most devastating indictments uh, uh, of black folks in this country. Critical race theory used to be called stereotyping. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard it put that way, but that is the best way to describe it. Yeah, you don't have to get any fa anything fancy. It's just stereotypes. We used to they talk about all blacks look alike, think alike, and act alike. That's stereotyping. Now I'm just saying all white people think alike, act alike, and are, you know, it's a stereotyping. So that's just, it, it was stupid. And, and back then, it is stupid now. And then a lot of... A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have been hearing about critical race theory. It's been banned in Florida and Iowa. Uh, it's, it's been an issue here in some of our own schools. Tell us a little bit, Bob, about what critical race theory is and why you think it's problematic. It's literally about stereotype. It's saying that, that all whites are the recipients of, of power and, and privilege uh, and, and they are an oppressor uh, that, that in your DNA, there's racism because you're white. And therefore, the only way that this can be that, that, that only this must be taken from you, you must profess your whiteness. It's stereotyping. I don't know how best to describe it. It's saying that all, all white people are this and all black, that we should be defined not by the content of our character, but the color of our skin. Well, that's what Dr. King fought against. Uh, and, and, and I, I I've committed to, and everybody is committed to that, because where does critical race theory take you? If you're saying that there are victims and villains, tell me how, what is the conclusion? Where does it go? What, is, what does victory look like? So, and so play, they don't have an answer for that. Yeah, I mean, to, so, to play devil's advocate on this, though, sir, I mean, I've been trying to understand the, the side of people who are for this. And I think to, to kind of sum it up the best I can, they, it, it comes down to this when I've heard it from both sides. The people that are pushing for this type of curriculum want to have a conversation about race and how policies going as far back as the 60s or even farther back to Jim Crow are still somehow playing a role in the lives of black Americans in the United States. And then with the people who are against it, the way that the people who are for it hear it is as if they don't want to talk about it, as if it didn't exist, as if everything is fixed. Now, I, I, I come from a multiracial family. My grandparents were probably one of the earliest interracial couples in the United States at a time where it was illegal. Now, when I look at the timeline of civil rights legislation and things like that, I look at Alabama, where I also lived outside of Selma for several years. And in the state of Alabama, interracial marriage was illegal until the year 2000. And 40% of Alabama voters voted to keep it that way. 2000 wasn't that long ago. I was seven years old. 
So I do understand how some of this is somewhat of a generational hangup. We want to treat it in some way, I think for a lot of people on the right side of the spectrum, we want to treat it like it was a million years ago. But for some people that really look at this, they think that's just one or two generations ago. So I'm not saying I'm for it in that sense, but what I am saying is I understand the crux of the argument that's being used to push a bad system onto people. Folks, I'm interrupting real quick just to go ahead and remind you that productions like this are only able to exist because of your support from people just like you from throughout the state of Wisconsin and throughout the nation. And if you're getting value from this program, what we're hoping is maybe you'll want to go ahead and give some value back, really exercise that free enterprise system that we truly believe in to spread this message throughout the world, really. Because that's the amazing thing about the internet. But how can you do so? Today, I've gone ahead and brought in my friend and colleague, our director of development here at the Badger Institute, Angela Smith. Angela, for people that want to go ahead and take that next step, maybe they're a first-time donor, maybe they want to go ahead and just learn more about how they can support us as an organization, how could they do so? Absolutely. Thanks for uh, asking. Real quick, um, the Badger Institute has been around for three decades. We are a driving force really to protect individual liberties in Wisconsin, ensuring opportunity and prosperity for all Wisconsinites. And we are grateful for donations of any support um, in any amount. Um, Truly, your support really does make a difference at any level. There's a couple of ways you can donate. You can go ahead and go on our website, which is badgerinstitute.org. There's a donate button right on the front homepage there. Click donate, and it gives you a couple of different options. You can pay securely online. Um, Another option is you can send us a check. Our mailing address is right there on the website, and um, you can send a check here to the office. We would be very grateful for any donation. Again, really does help um, protect individual liberties, limited government in our state, and our goal is to make Wisconsin the freest and most prosperous for a state in the nation, we can really only do that with your help. Absolutely. And and the message of these ideas, the message of liberty is a universal language that hopefully you can be a part of in spreading to those that want to discover more. So that's all I've got. Let's go ahead and get right back to the show. Okay, let me, let me just correct you about something. If it was a need for a conversation, I would agree with you. I would agree with 1619 that the whole issue of slavery and discrimination has not been thoroughly uh, uh, presented. And and so, and and I'm for that. But where I disagree is when we make certain presumptions, when we take certain actions to say to people that we are going to have meetings where all white faculty and that white people have to come together and assign a confession of, of profiting from, from, from privilege and that there will be black meetings of parents and kids will be over here, that children are being forced to confess their privilege and, and engage in actions. Uh, this is self-destructive that, that tells people, but it's all even more lethal to blacks. To say to black people, the message to black people is that if you're cutting and shooting one another, it's not your fault. If you're killing, shooting 50 people in Chicago on a weekend, it's not your fault. It's institutional racism. You know, and so nothing is more lethal than telling a person that they have no agency, they have no responsibility for their social uplift. And also 
it's a matter of national security to say to black and white and brown people, young people, that they live in a, a racist society, that racism is in its DNA. Why would I want to be a first responder and risk my life defending a country that I've been told is racist? So this isn't just about having a conversation. No, this is taking actions to actually denigrate the values and institutions that the, the Smithsonian published this a profile of what is whiteness, delayed gratification, ambition, um, coming to work on time. I mean, they have a whole listing of what they said is whiteness. So in other words, they're saying to be authentically black means that you don't come to work on time, you don't delay gratification, that's the old vaudeville stereotype of blacks. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, there was a producer for the BBC. Has anyone seen that show, Luther, on BBC? No. It's a good no. show. It's a good show. And Idris Elba is one of my favorite actors. And there was a BBC producer that went ahead, and I think she wrote a piece for Sky News, saying that she doesn't feel comfortable putting Idris Elba, a black British-born actor, in a film where he has to play a traditional black man in England because he doesn't do t- what she considered typically black things. He hasn't listened to Jamaican music. He doesn't go ahead and hang out at the barbershop. This is her words. And it's like, my gosh, lady, you just went ahead and pulled out a stereotype of like one of the most ignorant things you could possibly say. And why not go ahead and commend him for the fact that he's an amazing actor? Why not commend him for the fact that he's a philanthropist in his community? You just went ahead and said, well, you know, he's good, but I I don't think he's black enough for me. Exactly. But that's what, and, and you see, but you got to understand this, that while all of us are concentrating, looking at everything through the prism of race, the more critical challenges facing us are going unaddressed. Amor, America is in a moral and spiritual freefall that is causing blacks, the highest uh, the, the form of uh, cause of death in the black community is homicide among low-income whites, it's prescription drugs, and among uh, wealthy white and Asian families in Silicon Valley, their teenagers are, are committing suicide six times the national average. So you're going to tell a white mother who lost a 17-year-old daughter to suicide who jumped in front of a freight train, and a mother who lost her daughter in, in a public housing project to homicide, and to an, an, an Appalachian mother who lost their daughter to drugs, that somehow the most important issue in their life is race? No. What we're trying to do with the Woodson Center is deracialize race, get it off the table, so we can bring these three groups together to talk about how do we fill the empty hole that's in the hearts of our children that is causing them to devalue their lives to the point where they'll take their own life or take someone else's. That's the critical problem that we're facing. Yeah, but we're not going to be able to solve that problem if we have to look at each other through the false prism of race. And Bob, one thing you've done um, at uh, the 1776 Unites and uh, the, the Woodson Center is you've published a new book, uh, Red, White, and Black, which I think is doing uh, very well um, in terms of sales. Uh, and I'm excited to see that. 
and a number of your uh, contributors, a number of your scholars and thinkers have contributed to this book, which is fantastic. Um, one of the uh, things that, you, that I've seen kind of highlighted throughout is such a, a positive emphasis on the success of blacks, on personal agency, on um, uh, America as a flawed but improving place that had aspirations that are just now, you know, being realized and have taken time to be realized. Um, one of the things that uh, John McWhorter wrote that about the 1619 Project, and I think also applies to critical race theory, is, is was so good that I wanted to quote it. Uh, he writes about their perspective, that this is a way of looking at the past familiar from Marxist ideology, training adherents, Zen style, to carefully stanch reasonable disbelief in favor of slogans, to tamp down a desire to explore, discover, and reason with a commitment to broad-stroked evangelism. And really, that's what I think we're seeing here. We are seeing sort of a dogmatic, uh, evangelistic, uh, almost a, a faith. I think another one of your off, off authors con uh, considered this actually to be a faith movement where the left is basically saying, these are things you can't even talk about. And you people over here can't even speak in this conversation. And it becomes this, this dogma that continues to divide uh, and, and not, not unite, which is why I love the name of your organization or your, your project, 1776 Unites. But so much of this is really about advancing this ideology. It really is. And again, I think anytime you want to assess assess. The, the value of something, ask them, what does success look like? Mm. Yeah, what, exactly. What is the end game? Tell me if you get everything you want, what does America look like? I, I well, would I like to answer that. In other words, we have issued 12 lessons from our, uh, that our curriculum that we're offering free. We had 12,000 downloads in one week, hmm. 12,000, uh, 1619 had 4,500 downloads in a year. We had 12,000 in a matter of weeks. That book sold out on Amazon in less than two weeks. They're into a, a reprinting of the hardback cover. They had to print on demand a, a temporary uh, 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 soft cover because the demand was so great. What does that tell you? That Americans are thirsting for, for solutions that are aspirational, that, that, are, that, are, that, that, are, that are inspirational, so you, can, you, can, you have a, a formula for an improvement. In other words, people are motivated to improve their lives when you show them victories that are possible, not always reminding them of injuries to be avoided. So, so that's, that's the kind of thing that we are, uh, that we're trying to promote and that are solutions. And again, I challenge anyone left or right of some, tell me if we implement what you propose, what does America look like? I, absolutely. And I mean, when, when it comes to certain buzzwords like systemic racism, I, I've said this to you know people who are on the left side of the spectrum. It's like, well, you know, I, you know I, I'm against systemic racism. Point out the system and tell me what's racist about it. And they'll, they'll throw out something in abstract. And then it's like, no, get into, get into actual detail. 
and they can never point out the system and they can never point out the explicit part of it that is institutionally racist. Um, but, but going back to what Michael pointed out a moment ago, and I'd love to get both your thoughts on this, you know, describing this and the broader social justice movement that we're seeing on the left side of American politics, um, I... I mean, I, I think it. I think I agree with Michael 110 percent that it matches that of a religion. And let's break it down. The the foundation question: Who are we? Well, according to this type of thinking, we are all born inherently different because of our skin color, and that's going to go ahead and dictate the outcome of our life. What is original sin? The original sin is that certain people put down other people explicitly because of their. Uh, of their race. How do you achieve redemption? You have to basically go ahead and bring yourself down to a subservient level, and you have to go ahead and constantly remind individuals that you've never met before that they are inherently flawed because of the factor they cannot control, their race. And then for how do you achieve that? You have to go ahead and make sure that everybody is in an equal playing ground where your outcomes are always predicted by an outside factor, which is always the state. The state is God in that situation. That, that is all the existential questions that form a religion. And it's no wonder that when I ask people, okay, let's go ahead and tear down systemic racism together, point out the system, what do they go to? They go to the American family. They go to religious communities. They go to people that want to go ahead and live a life where they go ahead and use their free will to dictate their own outcomes. It's never, it's never just the police, it's never the courts, it's never just one thing. It always goes back to that. The people I don't like because they have something I don't have. This affects Hispanic communities, Asian communities, black communities, everybody. It's not just the white people they're going after. It's the entire way of American life because it's antithetical to this new religion they've created. No, it's true, but also it's, it's just based upon the fundamentals that if you believe that man is born basically uh, free of sin and that whatever happens uh, is a result of external forces that help shape that person's future, that's one way. But if you believe like I do, I'm a cardiac Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that people are born sinful the very fact that an infant, the two things that an infant, does, you don't have to teach them how to lie and cheat. <laughs> or say no. <laughs> or say no. They'll say, they'll take something from another child and they say mm -hmm. it's mine. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do that. He did it. But where does that come from? You don't have to teach it. Mm -hmm. And so then the rest, so if you, it has to do with your perspective. If you're a Marxist, you believe there's, you don't believe in original sin. You just believe that they, we, are, we are captive of external forces, and therefore, if you change those forces. Um, but, you know, even, even the left has to live with the contradiction. I pointed out in the tweet that, that Al Sharpton came to the demonstration in Minnesota in a private jet. Maxine Waters left a $3 million mansion to attend a Black Lives Matter event where the co-founder of it, it lives in a $1.3 million mansion in a white neighborhood uh, protected by white police officers. <laughs> These how are much money could, how much money Marxists. could How much money could one of those homes be used to send a couple of kids to college? Right. Like, my gosh, you can't, you can't hide numbers. You can't hide that. Well, what is the cost of a private jet flying from New York to More Minnesota? 
And and Bob, there's there was a great uh, section uh, that that uh, Wilford Riley wrote in the book uh, that was just fascinating to me. He cites a Census Bureau graphic that was created a few years ago, and he, this graphic demonstrated that altogether, eighteen different ethnic groups finished ahead of whites in terms of economic achievement. Um, uh, the uh, Indian Americans finished first with the highest median household. Others were Taiwanese Americans, Filipino Americans, Lebanese Arabs, Nigerians, American Jews, and so on. Uh, 18 different groups finished ahead of white people in terms of their socioeconomic uh, accomplishments. So it, it again kind of speaks to the fact that if you come to America or if you've been born in America and, and, and have a chance to work hard, get educated, have a, a solid family, you have a real shot at success here, despite, regardless of your, your skin color. Exactly. And there are other facts that we point out here when they talk about the criminal justice system is inherently racist and that, uh, uh, so, uh, so my prison. But it's interesting to look at which groups are underrepresented in prison. If American prison system, a uh, justice system were racist, the groups that are underrepresented are Jews, <laughs> Nigerians, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now they're, they're black, and yet they're underrepresented in, 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 our, in our Indians and some of those other groups you mentioned. They're underrepresented in the criminal justice system. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the things that we talked about in terms of agency is that um, when, when we've seen the Bronzevilles of Milwaukee or Chicago or, or the, or the uh, success in cities like Memphis and Detroit of the black community um, early on, uh, you know, families coming together, pooling money, when they encountered an obstruction from the white community, they just went around it and did, did their own thing. What, is, what has happened to that, Bob? What, why do we not see as much of that? Why do we see so many urban centers uh, as places where there is not economic development, where families are broken apart, violence is, um, you know, uh, a real plague. What's, what's going on there? What's happened over the last 30, 40, 50 years? Uh, I write about that in a, in a, in a paper I presented to, to, to Harvard, Public Policy Review, where I, where I unpacked that. And it was very interesting when I gave the speech, um, I think they assigned researchers to go into it to, to refute what I said, and, sure. and I ended up using their footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> it, took, it took Harvard six months to publish it, and I kept saying, well, when is it going to be published? Well, our computers are down. Can you imagine <laughs> Harvard saying for six months their computers are down, and they can't? You see, the trajectory of the planets and the alignment Right, of you know what I mean? And so finally, when they did, I, they found support for what I was saying that I couldn't even find. Hmm. But but to answer your question, that we made some some mistakes internally in the black community by embracing separate as being inherently unequal versus separate being strategically unequal. Hmm. In other words, if I, I pushed back, I left the civil rights movement over this very proposition. I said we should never be pursuing um, busing. As a con in, in, in other words, the opposite of segregation is not integration. It should have been desegregation mm. with pluralism as the goal. 
Because the moment you define separate as inherently unequal, it means anything is all black is all bad. So we integrated ourselves out of our own businesses. We, um, we, we, we left our schools. School desegregation should not have started with the children. They should have integrated teachers first. Mm. But because of integration, all the Rosenwald schools closed, which meant there were 80,000 black teachers. Half of them lost their jobs because they were not hired by white schools. Wow. I, I wrote a book about George Wallace and the civil rights movement. And I, I mean, that, that, I, I'm learning facts all the time. I never knew that until just now. Yeah. And so, uh, and so we integrated ourselves out of our businesses. We also, Urban Renewal did more to destroy mm-hmm. uh, black centers of, 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 of black urban uh, economic centers than the Klan or the Bright Citizens Council. And, and it was, Urban Renewal was opposed by the black business community, but because black elected officials who were paid off supported Urban Renewal you got a highway through the Haytai section of Durham. There's a highway through the Overtown section of where the Carver and the Calvert hotels, there were uh, highways through those. So everyone where Columbia University uh, Law School is, that used to be a black urban uh, business center. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, I, I was, when Jewish people wanted, they would segregate, I mean, they were discriminated against in admission to Harvard and Yale and, and Penn. But when they desegregation came, they didn't abandon Brandeis and Yeshiva. <laughs> mm-hmm. They wanted Brandeis and Yeshiva. We abandoned our institutions in the name of integration. We left our hotels, we left our our, our businesses. And so, so in part, and it was a combination of urban renewal, the poverty programs, when blacks uh, became liberal democratic officials, and then the poverty programs dumped $22 trillion over the last 60 years, where 70 cents of every dollar goes not to the poor, but those who serve the poor. And they asked which problems are fundable, not which problems are solvable. So you have these tsunami of uh, a, a combination of forces. Uh, if you read um, Cloud and Piven, the two social scientists at the uh, Columbia School of Social Work, these were about socialists, and they said what we must do is separate work from income, and it'll make the father redundant. It'll produce out of wedlock births, drug addiction, school drug, and what they predicted was true. Mm-hmm. And Bob, you do a fantastic job of laying that out in your book, The Triumphs of Joseph, which uh, I would recommend everyone read as well. Um, just, I want to talk to you real, real quick too, Bob, uh, as we wrap things up, just, just about kind of a balanced perspective of America. Uh, we, we hear a lot, and I think rightfully so, kind of getting to Remso's earlier question. We hear a lot about uh, the awful treatment of blacks at the hand of whites, uh, whether it's slavery, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's in the North, whether it's in the South. We can cite 
myriad examples and horrifying examples. And, and I know people who have undergone things that I just, I just shake my head at how horrible their stories are and how, how bad their experiences have been. But it's, but I wonder too, I, there's a story here in Milwaukee. Um, there was a, a man named Joshua Glover. He was a black man. In 1854, he was arrested in Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, he was taken up to Milwaukee. Uh, he was in the jail there. And word of his arrest got out um, that this black man had been arrested. Uh, and a mob began to form outside the jail. Before you know it, 5,000 people, 5,000 people had gathered outside this jail. And in the morning, they, uh, they stormed the jail. They overpowered the guards. They broke down the cell. They took Joshua Glover. They dragged him out. And you know what they did to him? They put him in a safe house. And for the next month, they kept him in the underground railroad until they were able to get him into Canada. So the reason he had been arrested was because he had violated the fugitive slave law. Uh, he had run away from his Missouri slave owner. Uh, he had been arrested by agents, but you never hear that kind of story. Um, he, he was rescued by 5,000 Wisconsinites and hidden by households innumerable across this state at the risk of their own, you know, welfare and safety and, and facing prison time in order to make sure that this one individual was, uh, you know, gotten to safety in Canada at the time. It's just a moving story. And I, I just wonder if there's a lack of balance in, in the, the sense that so many whites for so many years, whether it's in the political spectrum, whether it's through their writings, whether it's through actual, uh, you know, uh, activism or even warfare, um, have not, have you know, we've been willing to lay down their lives in order to advance these American ideals to make sure that the black community are a part of that. Michael, what I'm advocating, and we at the Woodson Center, is precisely goes to that. We, we need to establish, we're trying to perhaps work with Hillsdale to establish a center for the study of resilience mm. and perseverance. Not enough conservatives bother to study and write about those e examples. So we need to talk about not, uh, and again, I call that a resurrection story. Mm-hmm. Most people want to focus on the people who broke in to lynch people. That's a crucifixion story. Mm -hmm. Crucifixion was a reality. But if you only read the chapter on crucifixion, you will not know about resurrection. Exactly. <laughs> and so what I'm suggesting is that we, they're insufficient. What we're trying to do at the Woodson Center is our next step is to promote examples of radical grace and action. Mm. The, and that's an example of radical grace and action. I'd like you to send me some more details on that one. Sure, be glad to do that. But also there's a town in Michigan that was established after slavery that never, that never segregated. It was always integrated. Hmm. And interracial couples migrated there. Blacks were paid the same wage. So there are islands of moral and spiritual excellence in America that defies the stereotype of America being an oppressive uh, uh, place. But we need to, we need, particularly conservatives need to spend more of just, instead of writing tracts condemning what the other side is doing, why don't we go out and publicize stories like this? 
We should make movies of, of, of this. So, Bob, for our listeners, very quickly as you wrap up, um, regardless of the race of our listeners, uh, what should they do? What should um, people do that can actually be helpful, that can actually contribute to a positive discussion on issues of race and, and the things that are related to that? Well, first of all, all your listeners who feel guilty, who are white and feel guilty about being white, <laughs> just tell them that Bob Woodson has been self-appointed uh, a racial exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> He's so free, my send son. Me, send me twenty-five dollars. I can send you a, a, a racial exorcist. We'll put your PayPal link in the show notes. Huh? We'll put your PayPal link in the show notes. Yeah, a little PayPal, so you can and you can be free of racial guilt for a year. <laughs> Because I really think we need to laugh at some of this stuff. Mm. But you, we really need to come together with people in the community, in the black community, who don't buy into this madness. And we need to unite in defense of this nation. And they are, they'll, there'll be plenty of, uh, we, we are trying to gather people all over the country to unite around radical grace theory. Rather than you, so we need to have our own uh, mantra, and that is radical grace theory. Read our book, join us, and 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 begin to concentrate your your resources in in, in promoting uh, affirmative actions that celebrates America's past and our future. And and the book again is red, white, and black. And, and Bob, what is the website for 1776 Unites? 1776unites.com. That's easy enough. Yeah, and, and uh, woodsoncenter.org. We have a second book called uh, Lessons from the Least of These also that, that gives you details about how to identify worthwhile grassroots organizations and what are the principles that you should use to empower them. Well, Bob, thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you for the work that you've done here in Wisconsin and Milwaukee with uh, the Running Rebels, uh, inspiring things like the Joseph Project that is putting so many people to work. Uh, I know you've been invested here in, the, in uh, the city of Milwaukee for a long time. We really appreciate all that you've done and all that you're continuing to do. And I want to thank you all for, for doing what you're doing in terms of uh, being a, a good example for what a think tank can do locally to highlight the important co accomplishments of grassroots leaders uh, who embody the work of our principles. People want to see a sermon. They're tired of hearing a sermon. Mm, mm, that's good. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Wow. I, I have to say, Michael, you know, having studied the civil rights movement, having looked into the policies that are affecting minority communities, I, I felt like I was, you know, a college freshman actually just sitting in front of a master class when it came to Bob. You know, every day you can learn things that you would have never thought would have, you know, been able to surprise you. But I mean, the, the man is just a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He, he truly is. And uh, it's, it's always a privilege to talk to Bob. I always learn something when, when conversing with him. He, uh, he's got decades of experience in 
some of our most troubled neighborhoods. And he's not somebody who's just a talking head. He's not just somebody who's opining. He's in the trenches. Uh, he has been fighting for civil rights. He has been fighting for economic development. He has been fighting against uh, violence in our schools and neighborhoods for decades. And he really puts his money where his mouth is. But um, you can just learn a ton sitting at his feet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, learning about his his take on, you know, the 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 desegregation of public education in the 60s. I mean, knowing that so many black teachers were, were put out of work. It's one of those situations where it's like you hear that and you get like this this like gut reaction of like, no, it had to have been good. That's what we wanted. But then when you actually look at how it was implemented, it's one of those situations where the policy intention and the outcome are different because yeah, the kids got put into the schools, but who ended up being cast aside as a result of it? It was the people who were probably best suited for these, you know, these new programs and for this new way of doing schooling to help with the transition to actually make sure that they were, you know, being treated fairly in the classroom, that they actually knew the students from the communities they were coming from. I mean, that just absolutely shocked me. What were some of the things that you took away from, Bob? Well, I think that's, that's spot on. And I think that's part of the reason that Bob put so much emphasis on civil society, society solutions to these kind of problems, as opposed to heavy-handed, one-size-fits-all government programs uh, that you know, tend to have a, a few smart central planners at the top who think that they can anticipate what's you know, needed. And quite often, there are unintended consequences that, that no one could have anticipated. So you know, Bob is an advocate of let's, let's address these problems, let's solve these problems, but let's do so in our communities. Let's do so in our churches. Let's not look to Washington, D.C. for these answers. How can we make our neighborhoods better? How can we develop relationships that aren't there? Uh, how can we strengthen ties between the community and police and so on? And, and what are approaches that are working as opposed to saying we're going to mandate X for everybody, which more often than not just doesn't work? Um, I was, uh, you know, I think one of the things that Bob recognizes is that um, human nature is human nature. You know, it, there's, there's not a white race and a black race and a you know, Hispanic race or, or whatever it may be, however we define these terms, it really comes down to there's a human race and human nature is, is pretty much the same across the board. We all have our blind spots. We all have our prejudices. Uh, we all uh, fall into tribalism, whatever that might look like. You might be a you know, Redskins fan or, or a Washington football team fan and I might be a Detroit Lions fan and we can fight about that. We can find all kinds of ways to I'm separate. Sorry, as soon as you said Washington football team, I just got extremely triggered. <laughs> I we'll apologize. Move, we'll move past that. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, you can excise that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, you know, we we all have these ways of kind of falling into and categorizing ourselves, and some of the things we talked about today do exactly that. Uh, they they say this group of people acts this way. This group of people has a systemic problem. Whereas it's far better to say, look, we're all humans, we're all flawed, we're all fallen. How can we work together to make a better America? And again, realize the aspirations that the founders laid out. It was they didn't do it right, but they laid what they did uniquely was they laid out some aspirations to say, here's where America could be, here's what America should be. And over the course of the last two centuries, we've made a ton of progress in that area, and we need to do more. Let's figure out the best way to do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well. Um, I'm hoping that our listeners went ahead and took away from this as much, you know, 
knowledge as, as we did. This is why conversations like this matter in a way, and that's why I'm so glad we're doing this podcast, because I could go ahead and try and take the time to read his book and everything else, but it's always different when you actually get to interact with the person on this and actually have a conversation. I, I think that's lacking overall in academia, that's lacking in journalism. Um, you know, as people listen to this interview, there were some things that I was a little bit ignorant about, but my questions were sincere. And I hope that, you know, our listeners go ahead and ask sincere questions in their life because when we're talking to each other instead of talking at each other, it's the only way we're going to actually come out of this as better people. That's, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what we want to encourage with this conversation and going down the road. We don't, we don't certainly think we have all the answers here at the Badger Institute. We're learning a lot and, uh, but we're doing it in a way that's uh, engaged in the community and uh, with the goal of trying to make a difference, to try to create opportunity for people to prosper uh, and to, uh, to do what they're called to do. And that's, uh, that's exciting. Absolutely. So, Michael, before we kind of wrap things up, any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, we have a, a chance that we might actually be having Bob Woodson come in uh, to Wisconsin on July 22nd. So tune in here for further details. Awesome stuff. Well, folks, if you saw value in this, I certainly hope that you got some value out of it. Conversations like this are, you know, entirely brought about by you. Your feedback online, your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, that alone, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to us. If you can go on your favorite podcatcher app, leave us a five-star rating and review, let people know what you enjoy about this program will help us get these messages out immensely. As always, I'm Remster W. Martinez. Thank you for tuning in to Free Exchange. I'll talk to you later. Free Exchange is a Badger Institute production. Copyright 2021.